13 of Teal Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And on today's episode, we'll be discussing villainous virtues versus virtuous. That was a ridiculous idea, can't say that. <laughs> and the second half will be perhaps our most niche topic ever, London War Notes versus One Fine Day, both by Molly Pantadowns. Um, <laughs> so we've alienated a solid 99% of people, but I think probably not necessarily everyone who listens. I feel like if anyone likes Molly Pantadowns, it's the people who listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but before we start all that, Rachel, how are you? And more importantly, what are you reading? Oh, um, I'm fine, thank you. I'm just recovering from a cold, so I sound a bit nasal. Um, so apologies for that. Um, yeah, I'm very well. I've had half term. It's been my first week back at school. Ah, of course. I spent half term in Paris, as you do. Ooh la la. Yeah, <laughs> it was très bien. Um, and what am I reading at the moment? I'm well. I'm actually reading a very good book that I'm absolutely loving. Because mm. I did a U and I popped into a Charing Cross Road bookshop and came out with an armful of books. Excellent. The other day, um, one of which was London Belongs to Me by Norman Collins, which mm. I know lots of people have read and have said is really really good. And they've just brought it back out as a penguin, but it was really expensive in paperback. And I picked it up for a first edition for a couple of pounds, so I Ooh, felt very happy. Very nice. And it's brilliant. It's like this amazing saga of London life pre-war, um, set in a boarding house with all these people who live there and their lives. And it's just, I mean, it's it's not high literature, but it's fantastic. It's so entertaining. I love it. Ooh, I've often picked it up and thought, gosh, it's so long, and put it back. <laughs> it's inspired because it's really easy to read. It's quick to read. Okay. I mean, I've been reading it for a couple of days just on the tube, and I'm already at page 100, so. Okay. I do yeah. have a boarding house, boarding house novel. <laughs> um, it would be right up your street, I think. Yeah. I mean, you're not a fan of London, but, you know. London and a boarding house I can cope with. Um, a case in point, The Slaves of Solitude by Patrick Hamilton, which is a brilliant book. Oh. I think that's set in London. It's probably going to be set somewhere else. It's definitely in a boarding house. <laughs> no, I think it is London. I think it's um, it's I think it's forty nineteen forty six. So sort of war torn. Yeah, well, I think I when I looked this one up on Amazon, that actually came up as that other people have bought. Mm. So they're obviously connected in some way. Yeah, I'm not the first to have made that connection. Good. <laughs> um, well, I just spent the weekend looking after my friend's cat. <laughs> so. I just went, took a pile of books and sat in, in a little village in Oxfordshire. Um, lovely. And the cat's not, the cat's, when Marley listens, the cat is lovely, but, but, but she's not the most, um, time filling in that she like she likes her solitude sometimes and she'll come for cuddles occasionally, which left me plenty of time for reading books and I read six and a half books this weekend. Goodness me. <laughs> a lot of them were very short. Um, Probably my favourite of those was not particularly short, um, which was uh, Journeying Wave by Richmond Crompton, um, oh. which is, for anyone who's read, if you've read more than two or three of Richard Crompton's novels, any, um, then you, yeah, they're all the same, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> they, they vary in how good they are, but, but in terms of, it's always a massive cast of people, often related, who go through various anxieties and end up generally fairly happy. <laughs> Uh, and the same sorts of characters recur again and again. There's always a pair of women who live together and one is very domineering and one is very um, timid and the timid one breaks free. That happened. They were twins this time. <laughs> <laughs> who dressed the same, which don't get me sat on. <laughs> um, all that sort of thing. It was great fun. And it was published in 1938. I was reading it for the 1938 Club, which will be coming up in April, which is um, very similar to the 1924 Club, with one crucial difference. <laughs> Can you guess what it is? 
So yes, we only didn't follow the 1924 Club. It's where we, um, where Karen from Bookish Ramblings and I um, encourage as many people as possible to read books published in a certain year and to write about them. And yeah, get a sort of overview of the year. So it has to be books written in that year because the book I'm currently reading is set in that year. Does that not count or? Uh, yeah, no, that doesn't count. Oh. <laughs> I think they, I think they have to be published in that year. Um, but well, you know, you can you can mention it in a comment or something. I mean, you can publish <laughs> you, you can publish whatever you like on your blog, right? Thanks, <laughs> I give you that permission. <laughs> oh dear. Um, there are some famous books published in '38. Uh, Rebecca, for example. Oh. Um, mine's gone completely blank, but there are others. <laughs> Well, Rebecca, I have read, so I feel like I've participated already. Lovely, yeah. <laughs> but um, yes, go check out the Wikipedia page for 1938 in literature, and I'm sure you'll find something. <laughs> oh, is it comprehensive? It's not comprehensive, but it's, um, it's a good introduction. Although, actually, Celia by E.H. E. Young is one that I've vaguely meant to read for ages, but haven't yet, and that's 1938. Have you read that one? No, I feel like I had it for a long time, and then when I had one of my purges, I was like, right, that's it. <laughs> be yeah. gone. Am I going to read it? Give it to the charity shop, so it's not not there anymore. Ah, oh, shame. Anyway, let's let's go on with the first topic, which was yeah. very kindly suggested by lovely Darlene um, a while ago, which is virtuous versus villainous. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I should just say or really, shouldn't I? That would help. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are your instinctive thoughts? Well, Simon, having literally just thought about this now, um, <laughs> the first thing that came to mind for me was my well-known hatred of Mansell Park's um, virtuous heroine, oh, Fanny, uh, versus the villainous Mary Crawford. Ooh, an excellent example. Um, I'm pleased with myself about that. <laughs> yes, you sound good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, and that's a very good case in point, yes, for a tiresomely virtuous heroine. Yeah. Um, and I think actually as well, you could look at Jane Eyre, for example. Jane Eyre's mm-hmm. very virtuous and then you've got the villainous Bertha. And if you look at it from the perspective of um, uh, Jean Reese in Wild Slug SOC, is Bertha the villain she's made out to be? Or, you know, actually was she the virtuous one and was Mr. Rochester the villain? Yeah, that second one. That second one. <laughs> Sorry, it's a more nuanced than that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I feel like it's quite a um, Victorian novel trait to have two op- opposing women often mm-hmm. juxtaposed next to each other to say, you know, well, this is how you should behave and this is how you shouldn't behave. And this is what happens when you do bad things. That's true. Um, and then there's some, I've never read Pollyanna, but obviously there's such a big thing that became part of the English language in general. Um this is stereotype of children's literature, I think Victorian and Edwardian, um, of just children who are very good all the time and what, partly to be a sort of a moral to the child and partly just because that was obviously what they thought was entertaining. But because there's some, <laughs> <laughs> trying to think, because someone like, I guess with Anna Green Gables and stuff, that's when it starts getting more like the character is a morally good person but has flaws and that's yeah. sort of much more interest. And that's all, I mean, I think, as with most of our either or things, it's the, it's the middle line that is most interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, this sort of archetype of Lizzie Bennet, whatever, defeating the whole uh, um, good bad paradigm because she is just you know, flawed but great. 
<laughs> um, but you're right, I think... I'm trying to think of other Victorian examples now. Is... But I'm thinking like Elizabeth Gaskell, all those mm. sorts of novels have those juxtaposed characters. I think as you get more into a Freudian, post-Freudian era, you get more psychologically complex characters where you'll find the villain and... Um, the virtuous person wrapped up together, whereas in the Victorian times they tend to split them, sort of Jekyll and Hyde, as it were. Mm, uh, quite, quite literally, sometimes Jekyll and Hyde. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you know, it, I think it tends to be used in earlier novels as a, as having two opposing characters, whereas in more modern novels you tend to have um, two opposing states of mind within the same person and fighting with each other for dominance, I suppose. Oh yes, very nice. <laughs> Sounds really intellectual, but I can't <laughs> <any examples. laughs> arguably also the plot of um, Jekyll and Hyde, but <laughs> <laughs> it's not a post-Freudian novel. But um, um, have you read Pamela? As in by Henry Fielding. Um, as in by is that his Who's name? That Henry Fielding. I, I thought it was. Um... Oh, one of those. I, I, I've read it and I thought it was Samuel, Samuel Richardson. Samuel Richardson, yes, mm-hmm. yes. I cried over the boredom of that. You know, <laughs> I thought you were going to say over the moving. Yes, of it. It. <laughs> um, because it wasn't moving, it was tedious. But, um, it's the, the most boring <laughs> book I've ever read. <laughs> we may have discussed it on the podcast before, I can't remember, but that's an example of this heroine who's, who's not only a great virtue in comparison to Mr. B's villainy, but her, the power of her virtue is so great but just for observing it for a while, he becomes a good person. <laughs> yeah, which is just absurd. <laughs> which is the most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> and also, why did it need to be that long? It was telling the same message. It, the <laughs> it was the same scene over and over and over. <laughs> like, nothing's changing! I just want <laughs> to end. Oh, dear, just throw out a window and be done. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I was thinking about this, and I thought, my, in- my instinct went to saying all these very virtuous... Um, Often heroines are very tedious to read about. But then I thought, um, and I blogged about this a while ago, and I probably raised it vaguely here, that the three male characters in all of fiction whom I most admire are all very solidly virtuous. And they, they have some, well, so I'll say who they are. Um, okay. So Atticus Finch, yeah. Joe Gargery, mm. um, and it wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't mention Gilead <laughs> and, and Reverend John Ames. Um, so Ames is more, perhaps more of a realistic and, you know, flawed, but ultimately very virtuous character. Um, and we, and a moment just to think about how lovely he is, if we can, if we win. But, um, Joe Gargery versus his wife, whose name I can't remember. <laughs> um, Mrs. Gargery. Mrs. Gargery, yeah. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Imagine her being christened for the moment and we called Mrs. What was the pressure? But, um, so yes, Pip's sister and, and brother-in-law are, are very much a virtuous and villainous pair. Um, both in the in Dickens style, very obviously very um great, grotesque in the sense of exaggerated. Um, and so both, are, to my mind, fun to read about and works. And they work particularly well as a pair. I think I, either of them individually wouldn't work so well. But those three, um, wholeheartedly love. Don't find it annoying to write to read about um about people who are as good as them but perhaps that's just a mark of the quality of the writing well i think um you know sometimes it is nice to read about people who are just nice you know and like for example um you know mr knightley love him um he's always never really does anything wrong apart from being slightly priggish sometimes um but you know he's 
he never does anything that's spectacularly bad or out of character or tasteless or anything like that. You know, he's just solidly good. And I really like that about him because he's dependable. Um, and you don't often find dependability in a person in general, I find, um, or also <laughs> in literature. Um, so I think that's that's someone that doesn't bother me. I think I find virtuous characters annoying when they're sanctimonious. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, their virtuousness is 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 kind of um, in a way that discredits other people. It's like, you know, I'm so good and I always do the right thing and everyone else is just so awful in comparison. And it makes them, it makes everybody else, you know, seem as if they are, have been awful people when they haven't been awful people. They're just normal people. <laughs> and I don't like that kind of, um, you know, just really martyrish goodness that really but that's what bothers me about Fanny Price for example she's gonna like, say oh, yes. I'm just gonna sit in my room and cry when everyone's mean about me and yes. you know, but you're gonna play the very thought <laughs> it's just like everything is like oh it's just so bad and you know you're gonna get in trouble for this and I and I won't get involved and I won't do anything and I'll set myself apart and it's just like oh come on for goodness sake have a bit of fun sometimes and that's uh, what annoys me about her perhaps that's um what isn't annoying about Atticus, Joe, and, and John in that all of them are not only themselves very good, but they're very much not sanctimonious. They're all um quite empathetic people. Who, yeah, and they uh, don't judge other people. And that's mm, also, mm. that's the thing that bothers me the most about Fanny Price is that she's so passive-aggressively judgmental. <laughs> yes, she, I mean, she is. Yeah, she is. For sure. She's sitting there with her arms folded and not getting involved in things. It's like, oh, come on! You're silently judging them from the side. That's really annoying. Whereas I suppose someone like Jane Bennett is the most virtuous, but also doesn't judge anyone, always looks for the best in people, is absolutely a, a lovely lady. <laughs> Frankly, you know, I don't really see how someone can be virtuous if they're busy criticising everybody else the whole time. Whether... Zing, zing, how? I'm just saying. <laughs> so. Take that, Fanny. <laughs> <laughs> um... <laughs> I jotted down some of the villains, well, a couple of villains I like reading about, because I think, for me, I love reading about some villains, if, mm-hmm. and, and the one I wrote down, Mrs. Danvers, to talk oh, about Rebecca, yeah. so chilling, um, so just captivating what's on the page, and indeed when she's on the screen, but um, uh, there's also, you can see why she, uh, sort of a, a warped reason why she is like she is, but if it's a step or two further away, if she were just being mean for the sake of being mean if, or if she was being monstrously selfish or something I, w- I don't think I'd be able to cope with it if, if um, a character we talked about a bit about this with Evil and War I think characters who are just un- unkind for the sake of being unkind I find them very hard to read whereas if, if someone can be much more Machiavellian um, but with a purpose or with um, or with wit that, that helps <laughs> um, or, uh, the, I don't know that that I find easier and, and indeed very enjoyable to read. Yeah, I think that's what makes villains so interesting to read is because they're often such complex characters and even though they often do quite evil things, there is that psychological depth to them in that you can often see what's propelled them to behave in that way and you can still feel a bit of sympathy for them even though they're doing horrific things. Like, for example, um, a villainess I really love is Lady Audley in Lady Audley's Secret. Um, mm. by Mary Elizabeth Braddon, I think. Um, yeah, I've not read it. It's a Victorian sensation novel for people who don't know. And there's that this, she's this doll like bride who marries, um, a rich man and then sets about, I won't say what she does because it will ruin the plot, but you know, she's basically 
a bit evil. Um, <laughs> but you can see why at the same time. She's clawing her way out of a, of a life of poverty that has made her, you know, really restricted her life choices. And she's, as a woman, she's powerless in Victorian society. And the only way for her to gain power is, through her eyes, is in order to manipulate and destroy other people. And I can see, even though what she does isn't right, obviously, you can see what forces have propelled her into behaving in that way. And what, and, and actually it's fear that is making her behave in the way that she does. And that, um, mm. ability beneath the surface makes her, understandable makes her relatable in some way as well as you know alongside her being evil so you can't truly hate her because you can understand where she's coming from and I think that's the joy of villains is that they are so multi-dimensional and there's so much you can think about beneath the surface like for example I was just rereading um To Bed With Grand Music by Margarita Lasky have you read it? I haven't no ah I do, I do like her a lot so I must it's quite different from her other novels in, in that um, it's set during World War. Well, actually, all of her novels are very different from each other, actually. Um, but it's set during World War Two, and it's about this woman called Deborah whose husband has to go to Cairo to work. And so she's left alone with her child in the countryside, and it's all deathly dull. So she decides to go to London and get a job, and just basically ends up sleeping her way around London. And um, the first time, <laughs> you know, just in a... Sure. But, and, you know, you see this sort of seedy, seamy side of London beneath the surface of, of everyone, you know, mucking in and doing their bit. Actually, there were a lot of people who were basically using the war as a way to indulge themselves in behaviours that would never otherwise be socially acceptable. Um, and the first time I read it, I saw a lot of depth to her character because I was the same age as her when I read it. So she's 24 um, the first time I read it, I was like, oh, you know what? She's only 24. She never got the chance to kind of sow her wild oats and have a life and do the things that she wanted to do. But this time reading it being older, I was just like, actually, I wasn't like that at 24. It's yeah. pretty selfish. Um, mm. And I, they're, because they're, but at the same time, I could still feel a bit of sympathy for her because I could understand where she was coming from. And her husband is just as bad as her. And those sorts of elements of mitigating circumstances do add that depth and that kind of feeling of, oh, she's so annoying. Like you get involved and you feel really emotionally involved with characters like that. Whereas I think with virtuous people, they tend to be a bit more bland and you don't feel as though you're kind of journeying with them. You don't feel angry at what they're doing. You don't feel particularly happy at what they're doing. You just feel kind of myth about them. <laughs> Um, to go back to Magnus Alaskan, my, my housemate has just just read that book um, um, and described when she was not that many pages in what had happened. It was, it was a bit um, mind bending how she how she managed to fit quite so much and, and so many people into the first ten pages or whatever yeah. it was. Um, and um, I, I think um, I, yeah, I agree with this. Everything you were saying. Um, <laughs> but, um, the the line for me is drawn. I think sadism is something that I just, I don't think I'd ever be able to not only, uh, obviously I wouldn't empathise with the villain and often we're not meant to, we don't need to empathise with the villain to enjoy reading about them. I just, but I can't enjoy reading about anyone who is sadistic or selfish to the point of hurting other people um, okay. in, in any way. And that's why things like, um, oh, it's gone from my head now. I think of Dexter on TV, but there's <laughs> like, oh, Hannibal, the, the, um, What's it called? The Silence of the Lambs books. Yeah. I, I don't think I could, well, I definitely wouldn't be able to bring myself to read any of those. Um, anyth anything about a serial killer, anything about a torturer, I just, 
that's the vi- that's villainy beyond which I can go. Like if it's vil- it's a villain in Agatha Christie, then sure. But you know anything gory or cruel, just that sort of villainy I don't find at all engaging. I just find it repellent. <laughs> no, I agree entirely, and I think that's why because um, I recently read um, In Cold Blood. And oh yes, of course. The way in which Truman Capote was was trying to sort of add this kind of emotional depth to these characters. And, yeah, they'd had difficult, not characters, they said they're real people, you know, that's the deserving part of it. You're reading <laughs> like, oh, no, actually, this isn't a book. Yeah, true um, story. <laughs> and, he, you know, there were all these mitigating circumstances and what have you, but actually when you re- read the statements of these criminals, everything they said was like, yeah, well, we just did it because we wanted to. There was no sense of remorse whatsoever. And that's why I found the book so disturbing, because I couldn't understand how Truman Capote had managed to find sympathy for these people, despite the fact that they clearly they were psychopathic, mm-hmm. uh, from yeah. my perspective anyway. And that kind of behaviour I can't cope with, and I think that's why I found it such a disturbing experience to read, and I didn't enjoy it at all. I mean, obviously, there's also the added element of the fact that they were real people. So, mm. I think it does more broadly matter what genre book you are yeah. you're reading. If you've got a villain in a comedy, chances are it's going to be a great film, like Cruella de Vil or something. Yeah, great yeah. fun to read about. Uh, obviously, a villain in real life is a whole other thing, but but a villain in a in a crime novel, perhaps not. Um, a villain. I think the most interesting to me is some, a villain in a in a gothic or. Um, or a gothic-esque sort of book, or even just like a psychological thing. Like, I mean, Iago in Othello, um, yeah. much more interesting to read about him than it is to read about Desdemona. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is that psychological complexity, which maybe where it plays on empathy and a way like you're struggling to decide whether you are or not empathetic, but or alternatively, in a comedy where their villainy isn't necessarily being taken too seriously. The impact, you're not too upset by the impact of the villainy because it's a comedy, something like that. Yeah. You can enjoy. Yeah. Um, and of course, there are some evil, some characters that we would think, or one of us might think was a villain, that the other wouldn't think was a villain. Um, not so much virtue, perhaps. You know, maybe. No, no, I can't think of any characters I think you could go either way with. I mean, I think for me, I prefer reading about complex people. Um, and so I, I'm going to answer the question already. Um, I prefer villains, I think, mm-hmm. um, to virtuous characters just because I think that there is more complexity and depth to them. Like, for example, you know, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Mm-hmm. That's such a great play to study and also to teach children because you can, you know, really unpick it and start getting people, starting to think about, well, actually, even no matter how, badly someone appears to be behaving no matter how badly um you know far they fall there's always a trigger there's always something that makes somebody the way they are and you know we have to be able to triumph like compassion somewhere within us and yes obviously some people don't uh, can just completely psychopathic as you say but you know most of the time there are mitigating circumstances and i think that's a perfect example of a character who you can just whitewash as being evil but actually, when you dig beneath the surface, there's so much pain that's caused that behaviour that it's it's really interesting. And it's a ex- exploration of human psychology, really. And I don't think virtuous characters enable that at all. Yeah, I think um, I'm going to take a sort of a cop out and, and say that I, I think virtuous characters are definitely the least interesting to write about, to read about. Um but also a handful of them are the most interesting. So I think 
is this the whole centre ground of very interesting, psychologically interesting villains, and it would be quite hard to do a psychologically boring villain. Um, you'd have to be a pretty bad writer if you've come out and done that. Um, yeah. But those thinking particularly of those um, of the Atticus and Joe Gargi and, and Johnny Ames, I don't think I can't think of any villainous characters who I enjoy reading about as much as I enjoy reading about them. Yeah. Um, so if I'm just going to skim right off the, off the top, and, and, and then I'm going to pick virtuous characters because I think these can reach the greatest heights where it's not just fun to read about them, but also learning from them. Okay. There we go. <laughs> Very good reason. And Thank we have much. differed for a while, so there we are. Yeah, there we go. We can throw cat among pigeons. Um, <laughs> Um, and I don't yet know how, where I'm going to land on the second half. So, um, this, how did this one come about? I can't even remember which of us suggested it. Was I, it? I suggested it. Ah, awesome. In which case, do you want to, um, well, you, you introduce, um, One Fine Day and then I'll do London Warriors. Oh, okay. Um, so One Fine Day is a beautiful, beautiful novel. Um, just set just after the end of World War Two, when um, the main character Laura has just her husband has just come back, and they're starting to return to normal life, and they live in the countryside, um, and they have a little girl, and her husband's come back from the war. He's lucky in that he's unscathed largely, but there are um, lots of hints that you know things are not as they were. So their gardeners died, for example. He went to war and never came back, and that feeling it's just a wonderful expression of that feeling of gratefulness for the everydayness of life because you really that's the first and only really novel I've read about the war that has expressed to me that utter stress and anxiety that five years and that feeling of release when Mm. finally it's over Mm. and it's really powerfully moving because just there's a wonderful scene where she sits on a hill and looks out Mm. across the countryside and she just thinks I can look at this without being afraid for the first time in five years and that feeling of of no have being able to live without fear for the first time is never something I've had to experience and I just I mean I remember I cried loads in the first time I read it because it was so moving and I just for the first time I realized what it must have been like and I think we often think oh well Britain people in Britain didn't really suffer that much because you know we weren't invaded or the rest of it but just the the constant anxiety must have been unbearable and it's such a brilliant um kind of hymn to the beauty of England and the wonderfulness of freedom and liberty and what people fought for and I just think it's wonderful. Excellent introduction. Sorry, um, yes, yeah, so, and the end of the episode. No, um so I'll I'll do London more notes now. Um before I reveal whether or not I love one point day. Although anyone who listened to our rural versus urban uh, <laughs> podcast will already know the answer to that. Um so London One is also obviously related to the war. Um it was non fiction. um during the war and indeed after it, I think until the nineteen sixties, Molly Pantons wrote four nightly letters for I'm gonna say the New Yorker, but it yes. might be the New York Times. Was it New Yorker? Um where she described conditions in England, or was particularly London. Um and this book collects the ones that were published during wartime. And I think it's a really interesting um, and, as far as I'm aware, unique record of of the war that um, the two main advantages it has is that it covers the whole war in little increments. So it's not trying to give a big overview, but it's a, it's a fortnight by fortnight understanding of what happens in the war. Um, and it's also for an audience who is in some ways quite similar to a modern day audience because 
obviously they know knew quite a lot about the Second World War, um, but they didn't know what day-to-day life was like in England and need to be told that. So it's very similar, I think, to us who know broadly what the Second World War is, but don't understand exactly what it was like to live there. Mm-hmm. So I found it so um, so fascinating in that you could see how opinion changed. You'd, you'd see, for example, Winston Churchill. We think of him now, great British hero. Everyone loved him, blah, blah, blah. And then you, you read this and think, oh, actually, there were great there were months where the public couldn't stand him, or he made some unpopular speech, and people didn't like that. And then he came, you know, came back in their favour because of such, a, such an event. Um, I just found it so immersive, and it gave me a better understanding of what it was like to live through the 40, early forties um, than anything I've read in factual fiction outside of that. Mm. There we go. I think um, basically we both love these books. I think it's. <laughs> Hopefully, well, do well. I say that I love One Pine Day. Do you love London One Notes? Yeah, I mean, I I've read it a couple of times actually. I flick, I use it quite a lot um, for reference purposes, mm. and I do find it fascinating exactly for all the reasons that you've said because it is a very real and very current um, ex- explanation of how people felt. It's like basically having. A correspondent from the time on times on your telling you well people felt like this and people because you don't you know I think nowadays we have a very generalized view of what happened during the war and how people felt in general um, over a long period of time but you don't have that sort of month by month um, change in attitudes and if we think about you know at the moment in the UK we're having all this drama about whether we're going to leave the EU or not and you know every day there's some kind of new development whereas in 20 30 40 years time people aren't just going to be like oh some people felt like this some people felt like that whereas you know if you're living it you get the minutiae of of the everyday changes and that's what you pick up from london war notes and you also get a feeling of the atmosphere and and how little changes are happening and how things that annoyed people and um you get more of a truth of it because i find a lot of the time when you read about world war ii it's a very rose tinted view of everybody you know rolling up their sleeves and mucking in together and um and actually it can't have been like that and i was um reading a book the other day about the blitz and about how actually a lot of people um looted and pickpocketed during during the blackout yeah yeah and you know all of that gets brushed over, so you get that detail in in um, these diaries. She doesn't really uh, diary letters. They, she doesn't hold anything back. While at the same time, she must have known they would be kept for posterity. Um, and I think it's a shame actually that they're not more widely known about because they do offer a really unique perspective. And I think also you know she was Molly Plantadams was obviously quite you know well to do, but she does also express what normal life was like so you don't get get a really one-sided perspective and i think she's also quite good about being um quite non-judgmental she's quite objective about things mm. or she's not massively opinionated not from my perspective anyway you might think differently but i think she manages to keep things quite neutral yeah i think if if anything she is um slightly biased towards the Brits. It seems she's very fond um, of the people she sees. And I think you're right that she doesn't sugarcoat it or blandly say that everyone's great, but there's so much... In fact, in many ways, like Laura in One Fine Day, she has so much gratitude and respect for the people around her. Um, I, I can't remember the quotes I wrote down when I reviewed it um, on my blog, but it was um, 
these times where she sort of seemed almost breathless with admiration for individuals who were just getting on with things or had coped with tragedy, um, whilst at the same time, perhaps because they were real people rather than characters, not it didn't feel too much, it didn't feel annoying to read about them, but you were just thinking, gosh, yes, people have faced a lot and got through it. Yeah. Um, I think it's the kind of, and also what makes them so interesting to read is that she's such a good writer. And so mm, just mm. reading like, oh, well, so people today feel really cross because Winston Churchill made this speech and, oh, and it's, uh, well, there's also some battle going on in Finland. You know, it's not, it's not dry. It's, it's really lively and there's a real sense of her personality that comes through it, which makes it, less of it because I know lots of people look at stuff like this and think oh it's going to be it's really long it's going to be really boring it's going to be really factual I don't want to read it but actually it it reads like really exciting and interesting news really I mm. found it really exciting to read could I do a podcast first and read an excerpt from it <laughs> yeah um, I've just been looking at my review on my um, on my phone <laughs> just trying to find this this is just after um I think this is just after France was invaded. Anyway, something terrible has happened. Um, <laughs> and it says, uh, For once, the cheerful Cockney comeback of the average Londoner simply wasn't there. The boy who sold you the fateful paper did it in silence. The bus conductor punched your ticket in silence. The public seemed to react to the staggering news like people in a dream who go through the most fantastic actions without a sound. There was little discussion of events because they were too bad for that. With the house next door well ablaze and the flames coming closer... There was no time to discuss who or what was the cause and whether more valuables couldn't have been saved from the conflagration. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a beautiful way of writing about it. Yeah. Um, very um, poignant and and it feels like she's in the middle of that scene. It doesn't feel... I mean, because she probably was, but it, um, I think now we might say news spread across <laughs> London or whatever, where she can... You feel like she's sitting there watching people going buy the newspaper and read it and seeing their faces and standing in the queue at the shop and all these sorts of things. You feel like you're transported to the middle of it. Yeah. It does feel very immediate. And mm. I think she has a real skill of making you feel like you are, you're there and you're watching and you can see it all unfolding before you. And that's what makes it so fascinating to read because you do, um, you do get that immediacy. And, and I don't think... Normally, when you read history, you don't get that. So this is that's what I love about it. It's happening right now, and she's, and I think it's really quite a unique, um, unique in its regularity and mm-hmm. amongst all the stuff you can find from the war. Really, I mean, I can't think of anyone else who wrote like that. I think there's a bit of, I mean, E.M. Delafield has got, you know, the, the the stuff from the war with the provincial lady, but again, that was written as fiction rather than. Mm. I've just read um, J.B. Breesley's Postscripts, um, which, is pub- which was uh, is a published version of broadcasts he gave on the BBC um, fortnightly or weekly or something in, the ni- in 1940. So in some ways he's doing a similar thing, but because it's to a British audience, um, he doesn't have to explain things to them, so, um, and he doesn't. So he doesn't have to tell them what it's like. So we don't. So we don't feel like we're learning what it's like. We're just hearing what he thinks about it. If you if you see what I mean. Um, do you see what I mean? Did that make any sense? So, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's not, um, bringing in a new audience. And it's a lot, it's, it's, I found it really enjoyable, but it's quite a lot of patriotic bluster, or <laughs> something that was, I'm sure was very helpful and needed, but not as 
long-lasting, not as interesting, perhaps, to, to modern readers. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, I think you're right in terms of regularity and who she was writing for. It um, it's a really special thing. I mean, I'm so pleased that Persephone have reprinted it now because it was very scarce a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and now it can be bought by anyone with um, twelve pounds to their name, whatever it is. <laughs> um, speaking of excellent writing, um, one fine day, as you alluded to in your introduction, is just sublimely written. It's it's one that I read first when I was about 18 and thought, oh, this is all right. And then I reread it again a few years ago and couldn't believe what I hadn't seen the first time. It's just such a glory, such beautiful writing that is, um, it's not stream of consciousness and it's not high modernism, but somehow manages to convey that sort of lived experience whilst at the same time not breaking too far away from the traditional domestic novel form. If, um, if you agree with me. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Laura, uh, speaking of characters who are virtuous but are interesting to read about, she she's very virtuous but is also a complete joy. Yes, that's true. She's um she's very sort of psych- so psychologically interesting but also just like like the French lady, almost as medieval or someone, some completely lovable as well. Yeah, no, she is actually. She's a rare example of someone who's virtuous but. Um, you know, she also has dark thoughts and, you know, things like that, so... Yeah, she's not stupidly optimistic. <laughs> I mean, she's optimistic, but she's not, um, she's not a Pollyanna. <laughs> I yeah. think, I think that feeling of gratitude that you spoke about earlier, um, is, that is what powers through that novel, where she just looks around thinking, I've still got my husband, I've still got my, is it child or children? I can't remember. Child, how much. Um, she's still got the countryside, she's still, and she's just, you can feel her sort of like like a like breathing sort of like a breath of um, a sigh of relief after sort of holding her breath throughout the war. Is it almost it's what it feels like? This this sort of joyous exclamation at the end of the war. Yeah, it's amazing. I just think it's going to be really hard to pick between these two, to be honest with you. Oh, well, it's going to maybe be the hardest one yet. <laughs> I think, because the thing is, they're both wonderful, but for for different reasons. And I think, I think for me, I'm going to have to say One Fine Day, because it's just such a beautiful piece of literature, as well as being really moving, and also providing a very real insight into what it was like to live through the war. So you kind of get everything in one, so that's why I'm going for that. (laughs) That is a very good point, actually. Um, Because when, when... we started this, I, I, I definitely wasn't sure, but I thought maybe I'm going to go with London Warnets because a lot of people have written novels about the war and the aftermath of the war um, that are lovely, and not many people, although this is the only resource of this right here, I know, but I think you are right that, um, firstly, that it's just such a beautiful novel, um, but secondly, yes, you do get, if not as incrementally, you do get a sense of what it was like to live through the war and after the war, and I'd love to read the London Warnets that one of Fantasy continued to write after the war, and I'd love so anyone in the, in the New Yorker archives, if you want to publish a collection of those, you sell, sell at least one copy. Um, two copies, I'm going to put you down for one as well, Richard. Um, I think I am actually going to agree with you, and of the two, pick One Fine Day. Oh. Well, <laughs> that wasn't that hard then. Uh, I mean, it's, if, it's only because I get to keep both of them. <laughs> <laughs> if I actually had to choose... I'd be here for another hour or two. 
<laughs> battling between them. Yeah. Um, but I think it's to yes, it's, should reiterate that anyone who's not read one or both of these rush out. You won't regret it. <laughs> and I think even if you think you don't like nonfiction, that the the letters are written in a style that is so beautiful and often quite you know she uses imagery and she uses um all sorts of insightful comments about people she sees that i think anyone who chiefly reads novels would also enjoy them agreed great well there you go yeah and dear listener in a in a rare turn of events, well, hopefully not so rare i i suggested to rachel earlier that we start preparing the second half of um, the podcast or what which authors or books we're going to read um a week and or sorry, an episode in advance, just in case there's anyone out there who wants to refresh their memory or to go out and read something. <laughs> um, and that's what we've done for this time. Let's see how long it lasts. But um, it, in the next episode, we will be talking about uh, two novels by Audrey Niffenegger, um, The Time Traveller's Wife, and Her Fearful Symmetry. Um, and I have very strong feelings. Uh-huh. <laughs> actually, so that should be quite interesting, shouldn't it? Yeah. Um, the first half, since less preparation will be needed by either us or anyone else, um, will be much more seated by pants and we'll find out next time what we're going to do. Well, hopefully shortly before we start recording, we'll have decided. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, thanks again to Darlene for suggesting the first half of the episode and to Rachel for suggesting the second half. <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> um, cool. Have a great fortnight, everyone. See you next time.